At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. How many thank God for the freedom we have here in our country? Amen. And uh, maybe the greatest gift I can give to you this morning is to be brief. So let me get right to uh, my text today. We have been uh, teaching through a book that many of you probably have not spent a ton of time in. Uh, It's called The Book of Lamentations. The Book of Lamentations, it comes after uh, Jeremiah's book of prophecy. And, uh, And I think it's a great book as we celebrate freedoms this weekend. Maybe the best way to describe this book is that it's a rope map to spiritual freedom. It's a roadmap to spiritual freedom because it introduces to us the most important ingredient for spiritual freedom, and that is the fear of the Lord. We've labeled this series, uh, this study through the book of Lamentations, we've labeled it Good Morning. Uh, Good Morning. Uh, But the way, if you are a careful reader, we have spelled morning is not as a greeting for when you wake up, but rather we're talking about grief or sorrow, that type of mourning. And it's an important book because so often we focus in on the good times of life. How many love to celebrate the good times of life? Everyone loves ice cream and rainbows. Everyone loves when things are going well, but we need training on how to handle the tough times of life. When seasons are not uh, ice cream and rainbows, when it seems like everything around us is challenged, when it seems like even God has not been on our side, what do we do in those moments? Well, Lamentations helps us as a book to know how do we express our emotions to the Lord when we're grieving, when we're hurt, when we're in pain, when we're dealing with sorrow. I think about the season that many of us have, uh, all of us really have just come through with uh, social distancing and so many in this pandemic who have experienced loss in their family or maybe friends or, or larger. And then beyond the pandemic, all the challenges that living in the fallen world throws our way from sickness to pain and suffering and death, all that seem to uh, infringe upon uh, the joy of living. And yet many of us have never really taken time to explore the riches of Scripture concerning how we process our suffering, our pain, and our grief. We've subtitled this series, Taking Our Sorrows to the Savior. How many know that he is the one that can bear all of it, that he's the one that can carry our sorrows? Aren't you glad you have a Savior? How many praise God for Jesus this morning? I want you to go with me to Lamentation chapter 2, and I want to give you a little bit of historical background. Pastor Doug opened up this series last week looking at chapter 1, and he brought out that what Lamentations gives us permission to do is to ask God the tough questions. God, where are you? God, how could you allow this to happen? Lord, this doesn't seem fair. Where do I go from here with all of this pain? Do you see me? Those types of tough questions God invites us 
us. He doesn't want us to run from him in the difficulties or the pain. He wants us to run to him. Why was Israel going through all of this? They were going through tremendous suffering. This book is probably written around uh, 585 B.C. It is actually looking backward to 586 B.C. when the Lord allowed the Babylonians, this pagan group of people, to come in and literally devastate Judah, which was the southern uh, uh, kingdom. Uh, Israel at that time had been divided up into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, the 10 tribes of Israel were in the north. They had already been defeated by the Assyrians, but Judah uh, was then defeated by the Babylonians. And why? It was because of serial unfaithfulness. It was because of perpetual unfaithfulness. It's because of repeated sin. Now, I emphasize this, this serial, perpetual, repeated nature of sin, because I don't want you who may not be as familiar with the Scriptures to think that Lamentations gives us the primary characteristic of God. In Lamentations, we do see a holy God pouring out his wrath, but make no mistake about it, the bulk of the Old Testament, the bulk of Scripture is about God's goodness and grace towards us. Praise God that he is good and he is gracious. James tells us in his book, chapter 1, that God is slow to anger. I don't know about you, but I praise God for that. I I make so many mistakes. I'm grateful that he's not quick-tempered. He is slow to anger, but yet he does get angry. Eventually, if we don't repent over sin, he does get angry. And what was the sin of Israel? Well, they worshiped foreign gods. They abused the poor among them. They did not administer justice. They uh, took advantage of the marginalized and Again and again, God offered them repentance through grace. He, he tried to reason with them, but after some time, his anger was kindled. And we see his anger on display. We see God changing his role in his relationship to Israel from friend to enemy. Have you ever gone through a season where it felt like God wasn't your friend? More than the season where it felt like he was absent, his, his silence is deafening sometimes, but have you ever went through a season where God felt like he was your enemy? Most of us have never experienced that, and we need to praise God because the reason why most of us have never experienced that is not because of our goodness. Our goodness is not superior to the goodness of Israel or Judah. The reason why most of us have never experienced the feeling of God being our enemy is because of Jesus. It's because of his sacrifice on the cross. It's because of what his blood has covered. How many thank God that his blood covered a multitude of our sins and invited God's grace and goodness towards us? But yet, we get a chance to read this important passage of Scripture, Spirit-inspired, captured here for our reading. One more word about this, then we'll go into the text proper, and that is I want to remind you, uh, those of us who uh, maybe don't speak Hebrew, ancient Hebrew as our native tongue, that what we're reading here is a poem. It's an acrostic poem. As a matter of fact, it's five acrostic poems throughout uh, the book of Lamentations that's given to us, each one following the similar pattern. 
This particular chapter, like the chapter previous to it, had 22 verses. The beautiful symmetry of that is that the uh, ancient Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And so each verse represents a letter in the alphabet. It is as if uh, the, uh, he, uh, the uh, writer, rather, of Lamentations is expressing his grief and sorrow from A to Z. What an orderly way to express our hearts to God. It tells us a lot about one of the ways we can express our grief and sorrow, and that is to simply uh, write, write poetry to the Lord. And maybe you're the creative type. Every song won't be an upbeat song. I praise God for the worship that we have here. So encouraging. But sometimes the songs are sad. And this is a sad poem that he writes, but a poem that is accurate nonetheless. And it's a poem that captures this moment in which God was Israel's enemy. But make note of this. Here's the big idea. When God becomes the enemy, we must cry out to him. When God becomes the enemy, we must cry out to him. The proper response to the wrath of God is not to run from God. The proper response to the wrath of God, if ever it should touch your life, is to run to him. Let's look at some of the points that uh, is provided to us here. First, that God is righteous in pouring out his anger. Look at verses one through four with me, and then we'll look at verse number 17. It says here, Jeremiah writing, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire and Jacob consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were, who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. Jump with me to verse number 17, if you will. And it says this as a concluding thought here. The Lord is, has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the mighty, the might rather, of your foes. Listen to what the writer says, that we are experiencing devastating judgment. It's as if he's looking back at one of the cataclysmic moments in the national history of Israel. It would be the equivalent of maybe us writing in 1942, looking back on that fateful day, December 7th, 1941. 
that day where the Japanese intentionally, purposely ambushed America. It's in Pearl Harbor that we saw over 2,300 young men die because of these Japanese uh, fighters. It was a day that then Franklin Delano Roosevelt said would go down and forever live in infamy. If you were writing a year later, looking back on that day, how would you have described it? Or maybe it's like uh, 2002, writing during that time, looking back at the events of 9-11, as terrorists seemed to penetrate the, the country that most of the world thought was impenetrable as they took down two of our iconic uh, buildings there. I remember being a stockbroker working in the World Trade Centers. It was just beyond uh, my ability to comprehend, to see them falling on that morning as I watched and a couple of friends, colleagues from uh, my office, the firm that I work for, were in those buildings, lost their lives, and it was a, a devastating day. What would it be like to look back on those moments that we say we will never, ever forget? Well, this is their D-Day. This is their 9-11. This moment in their history is Israel's day of devastation. But why was it caused? Why? How did this happen? This is the exact question that Jeremiah starts this chapter out with. He says, how? How? That word how starts off each and every lament. It is this deep how, Lord, not so much because you don't understand, but in the depths of your soul, you're wondering, how did we get to this point? Have you ever gotten so far afield from what you know to be true? Have you ever wandered so far from the Lord that you, you found yourself saying, Lord, how in the world did I get here? Never underestimate where sin can take you. This is why we should never vacation to the land of sin, thinking that, oh, I'll come back. I'll just vacation there for a little bit, but I'll catch a flight back home. There's a lot of place, people who took vacations to the land of sin and never came back again. But why? Why were they under judgment? Well, verse number one tells us it was because of his anger. Whose anger? The anger of the Lord. Verse number three tells us it wasn't just anger, it was what? Fierce anger. It was fierce anger. In a moment, we're going to see that it wasn't just fierce anger, it was thorough anger. But for now, look at who he refers or directs his anger to. Uh, Israel is mentioned in every adjective or every affectionate name she could be known as, as the daughter of Zion, as Israel, in verse number two, as Jacob, as the daughter of Judah later in verse number two. In every form you can think of, God is saying that I am sending my wrath, I am sending my judgment against you. But God was justified. God never judges us when we are not yet guilty. When God pours out his wrath, when God allows uh, his judgment to be seen in our lives or in this case in our nation, in a nation, it's because he has been patient, he has been giving us time and space to repent. That is why we should never take sin lightly. That is why we should keep short accounts with sin. Because when we don't, we are endangering ourselves and those around us with judgment. 
Look at what he goes on to say that God has removed even those who are delightful in our eyes in verse number four. He has removed those who are delightful in our eyes, meaning that uh, even the young man had died fighting against the Babylonian army. God had empowered the Babylonian king to come in and devastate his special covenant people. Why? Because they did not repent. Now, why is all of this given to us? My friends, he is not writing this poem just to give us a historical account. Lamentations is not written just for mere information. There certainly are historical books in the Bible, and certainly this is accurate history. But he writes Lamentations not for information, but for emotion. He writes to move and stir the emotions of his people And it's been preserved down through the centuries. And I believe the Holy Spirit's desire for us today is to be moved and stirred in our emotions. You know, when we see this type of uh, description or this type of passage, I'm telling you right now, every preacher wants to skip this chapter. You know, we we joked among ourselves as a teaching team saying, uh, which one of us are going to preach Lamentations? The fact of the matter is it's a book that most people want to skip over. We don't, we don't like to look at this type of passage, especially on weekends like this weekend where we want it to be all about fun and enjoyment and relaxation and celebration. But there are certain times when God is saying, don't look away. Don't look away. You need to see this. And why do you need to see this? It's because of what passages like this do to our souls. You know, when my wife cooks dinner, uh, my wife is a stickler for vegetables. How many moms out there are a stickler for vegetables? My wife is a stickler for vegetables, and I gotta be honest, I don't lend her a whole lot of support until she gives me that look, and then I'll look at the kids and say, do what mom said do. Eat those vegetables, or there'll be no video games. Eat those vegetables, or there'll be no bike rides tonight. Eat those vegetables, or you're not gonna go out and play. Any parent have that conversation with your kids. And do you, do you have those stubborn kids that you have to say, I don't care if you sit there till tomorrow, you're gonna eat those vegetables. Or if you get up, when you get hungry again, and they always do get hungry again, what's going to be on the menu? Those vegetables that you didn't eat. And why? Because vegetables do something for us that chocolate cake and ice cream don't do. It's good to have dessert every once in a while, but how many know we need the the nourishment the vegetables give us if we're going to be strong? My friends, this is a vegetable uh, passage. This this isn't a dessert passage. This is the part of the word of God that God is saying you need to eat so that you can be built up in your most holy faith and not drift. I'm giving this to you as a warning passage. It's one of those uh, disclaimers. This too can happen to you. If God would judge Israel, his covenant and chosen people, how much more do we need to take heed? Praise God for the mercy and the grace that we have received through Jesus Christ. But let us not forget that God is also holy. 
And because of his holiness, because of his goodness, he does judge sin. Every good judge, in order to be a good judge, can't let criminals get off. They have to judge sin. We all have a deep sense of justice, in particular when the crime is committed against us. We want justice. We wouldn't call our justice system just or good if justice was not served. So in order for God to be a just and a good God, he must judge sin. But what is his hope? His hope is that poems like this will move our emotions to a deep fear of the Lord. That's the application. The application of this passage is the fear of the Lord. It's missing from our country. You know, it used to be that a, 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 a guys would be out on the street corner and if they were cursing and swearing and the pastor walked by, they would straighten up and fly right. Anybody remember those days? Those days aren't with us anymore. It used to be the young people respected the adult authority, those days aren't with us anymore. Used to be that uh, things on TV were at least tried, to, they kept moderate until later times at night, those days aren't with us anymore. At one point in scripture, God accuses Israel, condemns them because they lost their ability to blush. Because they lost their ability to blush. We're living in a generation that has lost its ability to blush. If there is hope for the church in, in America, if there's hope for our nation, we need to pray that the fear of the Lord will return. But if it's gonna return, where does it need to return first? In the church, in our own hearts. What does the fear of the Lord do? It causes us to take our sin seriously. Israel stopped taking their sin seriously. They started treating their sin casually. And when that happens, God, God's wrath is poured out. But this first point is just to remind us that he is righteous in pouring out his anger. The second point, as we look at verses five through eight, is to remind us that God is exhaustive in dealing with our sin. God is exhaustive in dealing with our sin. Read, read along with me, verse number five. It says, the Lord has become like an enemy. There we go again. He is, he is standing as Israel's enemy in this moment. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruin its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. That word lamentation there means sorrow. Verse number six, he has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. He, uh, the Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation, he has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They uh, raise a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. Verse number eight, the Lord determined to lay in ruin the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampant, ramp, rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. 
You know, when you read this, I just want you to notice, it's so easy to read so quickly past this, but I want you to notice the, the, the thoroughness of his judgment. Notice what it says in verse number five, that God swallowed up Israel. Swallowed up, what a thorough, vivid word picture. But, but not only does he do it in totality, look at the, the individual pieces or parts, he swallows up her palaces. That means that he uh, destroyed her sense of political safety or security. The sense of military safety or security was swallowed up by the Lord. He goes on to multiply her mourning and lamentation. He goes on to say in verse number six that the Lord has forgot his festival and Sabbath. That means that any sense of spiritual protection that they thought they had had been removed. Not just the political, but the spiritual as well. Their meeting places, their booths have been laid waste. So any sense of economic security or safety that they thought they had got removed. In his fierce indignation, he spurned both king and priest. Now again, Israel is blown away by this. God, we, we have seen you in times past bring your judgment on king, but this time it is king and priest. His anger was so thorough that in verse number seven, he says, you've even scorned your own altar and disowned his sanctuary. What does that mean? That means that God allowed the Babylonians to come in and even to ransack the place of worship. Now, I told you, this is a vegetable passage. This is the type of passage that is hard to uh, really meditate on. And there's not much equivalent for us to be able to point to in our lives. Many of us have experienced sorrow. No doubt, many of us on a very personal level have experienced loss, but this type of national devastation, most of us have been spared from. But again, just because he's slow in anger doesn't mean he doesn't get angry. Just because he is slow in pouring out his wrath doesn't mean that he won't ever pour out his wrath. When we think about our nation and we think about the sins of our nation, would God be justified in judging us? When we think about the covenant breaking that happens so often in our nation concerning marriage, when we think about the blood of aborted babies that's on the hands of our nation, when we think about all of the evil and oppression and mis, uh, mistreatment and abuse that happens throughout our country, do you think that God would be justified? Oh, for a nation that would turn to Jesus. This, my friends, is a warning to us to turn to him. But as God pours out his wrath on Israel in this day that's recorded in Scripture, it points to a future day, a day in which God will pour out his wrath just as thoroughly, but this time not on a nation, but upon a man. He was bruised for our transgressions. The chastisement that brought us peace was placed upon him. The righteous took the place of the unrighteous. Our sins were put on the Savior, and on that cross, he bore the wrath of God so that I might know the freedom and the love and the grace of God. How many praise God for Jesus and the sacrifice that he has made for us? But my friends, don't neglect such a great salvation. It is either humility or humiliation. 
Either we humble ourselves and we turn from sin to God. Either we evaluate our own hearts or or judgment comes. It's either humility or humiliation. And I want you for a moment to think about what a nation is. We all can agree that our nation needs to repent. We all can agree that God will be justified in pouring out his wrath. But understand this, that the story of a nation is the story of the people of that nation writ large. What that means is that if we want to see the nation turn from sin to righteousness, we must turn from sin to righteousness. It is individuals saying, Lord, I am in the need of prayer. Not just my government, not just the religious leaders of my day, but Lord, let revival start in me. Let revival start in me. And the foundation of revival is repentance. It is when we turn to God with our own, with our whole heart and say, Lord, forgive me. And that is his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is that you and I would repent and turn to Jesus. Verse number 19 captures this. And this final point, third and final point, God is working to bring us to repentance. All of this, all of this that was happening in Israel was for one purpose and one goal. It was to bring them to repentance. When God pours out his judgment, it's to bring us to repentance. Look at what it says in verse number 19. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Repent, not just for yourself, but repent for your children's sake. Because if we don't, they will experience the wrath of God. Maybe we will live and maybe we will die and never see a moment like Jeremiah saw from his front porch. But if we don't repent, if we don't return back to the fear of the Lord, the next generation may not fear him either. And the judgment of God will only grow. The the fierce anger of God will only grow until we repent. But I want you to understand something. When God pours out his anger like he did on Israel, he does it as a surgeon, not as a butcher. There's a difference in the way that a butcher and a surgeon work. A butcher doesn't have to have the precision that a surgeon does. A surgeon goes in, yes, and they will cut you because they must, but it is only for the ultimate benefit of removing the sickness, the sick organ, the sick tissue, the sick limb. It is only for that purpose. A butcher doesn't have that carefulness or or that care. When God pours out his wrath, it is only with the goal of removing the sickness from our souls to get us to a place where we see sin as exceedingly sinful and not just the sins that we are caught in, but the sins that no one else would know that plagues your life. Have you ever repented over a sin that no one else knew about, no one else caught you about? Have you ever been grieved over a sin that no one else would know that you were guilty of. 
Maybe on the outside, it looked like the actions that you took were uh, generous actions, but in your heart, you knew it was to get attention from people. Have you ever had a moment like that where you said, Lord, my heart is not right. My soul isn't right. No one else uh, knows, but I know. I pray that we wouldn't have to wait for someone else to have to tell us that we're in sin. I pray that we will again, in private, keep short accounts with the Lord. If we wanna avoid moments like this, and I pray that we would wanna avoid moments like this, it happens in the secret place of prayer. As you in the private intimacy of your relationship with the Lord says, uh, search me, Lord. See if there be any evil ways within me. And he does, and when he brings those things to your attention, then repent over them. Sometimes he whispers in your ear and you don't hear him, and so then he uses your spouse to tell you how evil you are. <laughs> Amen? And sometimes you don't listen to them, and so then he'll use your kids. And sometimes you don't listen to them, and then he'll use your boss. And sometimes you don't listen to them, and so God and his mercy and grace will keep telling you who you are and where you need to change. And he does it because he loves you, and he does it because he wants to protect you from the ultimate consequence of your sin. And so there it is, my friends. This, today, is the message that God has served up for us. And why would he give it on a weekend like this, a weekend in which we uh, honor and show the highest respect to those who served and sacrificed? I think there is a deep connection. I think this is a weekend in which we should celebrate the freedoms of our nation. But yet it's been said, and I believe it's true, that freedom isn't free. If we're going to experience freedom, someone has to sacrifice. And so it is spiritually. Freedom isn't free. Praise God that the freedom that you and I have access to is because of a crucified Savior who did not stay in the grave, but on the third day rose just as he said he would. And now it is offered to us. My friends, don't turn away from this moment. If you're in need of salvation, whether you're in the building or watching me online, I pray that today you will humble your heart, search your heart, and say, Lord, it is me that's in need of prayer. Lord, save me. Come and cleanse me, and he will come in and make all things new. Let's stand together. Amen? As we prepare to close in worship, I want to pray for us, and I want to remind you uh, that after we are done here, there'll be friends up front to pray, and if there is some stagnant sin in your life, some area that you need uh, help with, that's a stronghold in your life, please come so that we might pray together with you. Father, we pray right now, the Lord, for your mercy and your grace to prevail in our lives, and we pray for this message of the gospel to be sent out around the world so that many would turn from sin and turn to Jesus and avoid the wrath of God. Thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. And it's in Jesus' mighty and matchless name we all pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.